and welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. My name is Melissa Lima, and I'm your North Coast and Organic Field Services representative with Western United Dairies. Today, in lieu of our weekly market update, the awesome folks at Blimling have shared their recent webinar recording, What Lies Ahead for Grain and Feed Markets. We think you'll be really interested in some of the things they have to say and learn a lot about some of the things affecting dairy producers in today's markets. Following that, we share a conversation Darby had with Western United Dairy CEO Anya Radabat about our recent work on the methane issues at the Capitol in Sacramento. Without further ado, we'll jump right in with the Blimling team. Thanks for joining us today. With our state facing a record drought, California's dairy families are meeting the challenge of getting the most out of every drop of water. According to UC researchers, California's dairy families will use 25% less water this year than last year. Over the past two decades, 50% less. How'd we do it? Resilience, innovation, technology. In fact, when it comes to water conservation, California dairy families lead the world. We're using recycled water, ensuring sustainability. We're irrigating our farmland more efficiently, doing more with less. And nearly half of what we feed our animals comes from nutritious, natural crop byproducts, which require no additional water at all. Dairy Families and the California Cattle Council are doing our part. We'll continue to feed California sustainably and using our water efficiently. I want to thank everybody for joining today. Um, I am welcoming you on behalf of myself, Tiffany Lamondola, and Trevor Sluggers, who can't get on here right momentarily. Um, really wanted to offer up our California dairymen a fresh outlook on grain and feed markets. We know these markets have been very volatile and you have lots of questions and concerns as we head into harvest here. So uh, tapping into some of our new teammates here or new to the Blimling side, I should say, um, to, to provide you some resources. And I'm gonna kick it over now to Mike North uh, to share a little bit about the merger of uh, Blimling and Everag. Thanks, Tiffany. It's uh, certainly been a pleasure as we've brought our two companies together to bring the best of both worlds uh, to play. And um, as you will see in listening to Jake and Britt, they've got a lot of experience and information to share as it relates to feed markets. Uh, but our companies really have found a lot of synergies that you'll see more uh, offerings come out of uh, from a research standpoint, from a, a market intelligence, from a technology, from a uh, client uh, uh, experience perspective, a lot of great things to come. And we're, we're, uh, we're grateful for your time this morning and really look forward to serving you all the more as a combined entity uh, between Everag and Blemling. So with that, I'll kick it over to Britt and Jake. Awesome. Well, uh, welcome. And for the sake of, of time, um, we're going to just dive right into uh, into the grain and oilseed markets. This is uh, probably not going to be a, a fully comprehensive breakdown of the markets, but obviously uh, our point here is to really drive home what's going on right now today in the markets and specifically talk about feed prices as it pertains to your, uh, you folks in California. At any given time, we know that any of these four uh, drivers can be at play in the market. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about most of these. Uh, there's obviously a, a plethora of other things that can come into play to affect what uh, is driving our market prices. 
So as we look at the corn balance sheet, this is really where we start our our year and each month the USDA releases a WASD report, which is effectively what you're looking at here. It is their opportunity to take a look at both the supply and the demand side uh, of the balance sheet and really project forward where they think our total supply, our usage, and then therefore ending stocks are going to be. Um, as you all are well aware, about a year ago today, uh, or in the month of September rather, we really started to see a monumental shift in our grain market. And part of that was a change that the USDA had made to a quarterly stocks balance, uh, quarterly stock sheet, but also we saw this uptick in demand from the Chinese. So we're gonna dive into all of this, but this balance sheet is one that we will uh, we'll look at until Friday, and then we'll get our new look at the September balance sheet. So the things that we're really paying attention to right now, yield, right? So uh, the USDA, took yield lower off of trend line um, to 174.6. Are they gonna make a revision to that, either higher or lower? That's gonna have a big impact here. The other thing that uh, is gonna be really interesting to see how it plays out in this next WASD report is uh, they've, they've announced that in the September report, they are going to take a look at planted acres instead of uh, traditionally in October when they would do that. They say they've got enough information to bring that, uh, to bring that number forward and so, the general feel heading into the report is we could see more corn acres show up uh, on the balance sheet here. But again, we don't know what that's going to look like. Um, and then a couple other line items that we really want to focus in here uh, are going to be, what do, what do we do with that feed and residual use category? Uh, is there room to take that number a little bit lower? And then exports. Because we know China is a big part of that export number, that's a big lofty export number, um, are they going to come to the table and uh, purchase as much U.S. corn as what we maybe anticipate? Uh, or are they going to follow a more traditional cadence, which typically does not mean much U.S. corn? As it stands today, um, those questions are something we're going to continue to walk through. The soybean balance sheet's really simple. So with beans, you either do one of two things. You either put them on a boat and they namely go to China, or we uh, they stay domestic and we crush them, right? Uh, obviously, yield is still going to be a question for the soybean uh, market. We did see the USDA take uh, yield lower in this last WASD report off of 50.8, which was trend line, to 50 maybe a little early in the season, given the fact that pods were setting in the in uh, the same time frame that the report was released. But nonetheless, the attention will still remain on what do uh, those yield numbers come in uh, like. And then uh, again, crushings, are they going to remain at the strong cadence that they've been at? Exports, are they going to remain as strong as they've been? Both of those numbers are pushing to the top end of what we've experienced in this market. The reality of the bean balance sheet, very plainly put, is it is also tight. It is incredibly tight, um, maybe even to a greater extent than what the corn balance sheet is. We've talked about yield a little bit, and this is going to be the ongoing conversation that we have. But you can see there's a reason why the USDA uses trendline yield as its benchmark and the place that it really starts each balance sheet at the beginning of the year is because historically, a trendline means that that's something average and something reasonable to expect from the market. Last year, we saw we came in just below trend line. Right now, we're pegged just below trend line. But again, that's a number that fluctuates back and forth and is going to have a big impact on where our balance sheet is. We're starting to see more and more third-party estimates start rolling in as to what they believe yield will be. 
probably the most widely publicized and followed of those is the pro farmer uh, tour. Of course, they uh, they get out in the fields, uh, they do their stand counts, and ultimately they came in this year with an estimate of 177. And again, that compares to today's USDA number of 174.6. They can continue to change that yield number as we move towards the January report. Last year, we were at 172. And again, that was slightly below a trend line. I think this slide really tells a pretty powerful picture of how did we get to where we're at today? And if you look at that black line, that's the 2021 uh the 2020, excuse me, 2021 balance sheet. And you can see as we started that year, we were going to be looking at the most excess stocks, the most amount of corn that we don't use that we've seen in modern history. And that was obviously what propelled these prices lower. Now you can certainly point to COVID as a part of that as well, but you had some wonderful pricing opportunities early on in the year as we were looking at plenty of corn in, in the supply chain. And we weren't really sure what the demand picture was going to look like in the midst of, of COVID. As we progressed through the year, though, we saw this dramatic decline in projected ending stocks on that crop. And obviously, we saw on the backside of that, this dramatic price increase. If you kind of pivot your, your eyes down to that red line, that's representative of this year. And at first glance, you can see we've got ourselves one of the tightest balance sheets we've seen since the 2012-2013 year. And if you remember 2012, 2012 was a drought that affected a lot of the Corn Belt. Um, and so where that, that red line goes from here is absolutely going to be impactful on what we see as far as future price opportunities. But as it stands right now, we've got ourselves an incredibly tight balance sheet. And that is probably going to lend itself towards higher purchase prices for the coming year. When we look at corn uh, ending stocks or stocks to use ratios, this is oftentimes maybe a better measure, if you will, of, of the pile that's left at the end of the year. Because over the course of time, what we use corn for and how much of it we use and how much of it we grow ebbs and flows. And so that stocks to use ratio is really a better measure of, of what is left at the end of the year. And again, this points towards this declining stocks, tightening stocks to use ratio, meaning we are using more and more uh, corn th uh, that we grow. <clears throat> the, the world scenario is, is equally uh, tightening, right? We're kind of seeing this drawdown. And we've really got a story here too in South America that's developed as of late. Um, that second crop in South America, that safrina corn crop, uh, has kind of gone from, from bad to worse. So they got that crop in late. If you remember, they were getting the soybeans out late. They were getting the corn planted right behind it late. And then they had, uh, basically they had a drought and then they had a, a, a couple of freeze events that really dinged both yield and quality of that crop. And so it worked its way down from 110 million metric tons, which was the kind of the initial estimate all the way down. Uh, and now there are some firms with 95% of that harvest complete in South America that believe it could be as low as 81.9 million metric tons. We'll see if the USDA uh, revises its number closer to that 81.9 uh, million metric tons. Um, but end of day, that's a change of about 1.1 billion bushels to the global balance sheet. And that's a big deal. 
That's a very big deal, especially because that safrina corn crop is typically the crop that is exported into the global marketplace. There's just less corn for world buyers right now than there has been for the last number of years. And then China, of course. And you could really point to China and say they were one of the reasons why we saw this big dynamic change in the pricing environment that, that we were in. And this chart puts it very plainly. When you look at that big orange bar there and what they purchased for 2020, uh, it, it's unprecedented, right? Remember, China basically didn't ever buy any U.S. corn. They weren't a part of the equation. And then boom, all of a sudden they came to the scene and bought U.S. corn like crazy. The expectation as it stands right now is that they think that China could buy about 26 million metric tons of, of U.S. corn this year, uh, of corn this year, excuse me, which would fall very much in line with what they did last year. I think this remains one of the biggest questions is when, how, if does China come to the table? Uh, because they're a little unpredictable, right? And we, we're never really quite sure uh, what to believe and what's coming out of there. But this could be one of the big questions. And this undoubtedly has a big impact on what our balance sheet could look like, whether or not those exports come to fruition. So let's pivot quick to soybeans. Uh, again, we saw a little bit of a revision lower uh, on yield there when it comes to soybeans. It's a little bit more erratic, right? As we look at soybean yield, maybe stabilizing the last few years with some wonderful technology coming forward there. But the reality is, is this is still gonna live and breathe as part of the discussion as to what the balance sheet looks like in beans. I'll look at the pro farmer tour. Uh, their number is a little bit higher than what the USDA came out with as well. Uh, but again, the USDA will have an opportunity to revise these numbers for a number of months here. And whether or not they do that um, will also start being indicated by some of the yields that are coming out. We're already starting to see harvest happen in some of the more southern delta regions. And as those numbers start to flow in, uh, they're going to change these numbers accordingly. The reality of the soybean balance sheet, much like corn is, even if we have exceptional yields, the supply is going to be incredibly tight. I'll even take it a step further. When you look at the global oilseed environment that we're in right now, um, we are in the tightest decade that we've seen for the oil side of the global oilseed complex. So when you look at that, you're really talking about, so if we talk about the soybean complex, right? So you crush a soybean, you get uh, about 80% of that is soybean meal, you get about 18% of that is soybean oil, and then you get 2% that's kind of waste, right? So you're also looking at Malaysian palm oil, you're also looking at canola oil and, and canola meal. And then you're also looking at uh, the sunflower oil market. So um, right now we know we've got a tightness overall in the oil seed complex. We know that there's a drought in Canada. And so they expect canola yields to be incredibly tight. Jake will spend some time talking about this here in a minute, but you've probably already seen that some of your mills might be pulling offers out past March if they're even putting any offers out today. So when we look at this, uh, this kind of soybean uh, complex, and we look at this entire oilseed complex, there's certainly a tightness that we haven't seen for a while. I don't know if you all remember back in 2018, but for a time, we were just under a billion bushels in ending stocks. And that's really, you know, where you guys comfortably lived with these awesome prices of 280 to $300 a, a ton meal. Um, and now we've seen this thing uh, slide rather dramatically to a spot where we basically got the tightest stocks to use 
that we've seen since 2013. And if you remember, again, 2012 was that drought. 2013, um, we saw a whole bunch of corn acres get planted, nearly 98 million acres of corn. And that's when we had the tightest balance sheet. We had just under 100 million, 93 million uh, uh, bushels of soybean ending stocks. So right now, as it stands, we have got one of the tightest balance sheets we've had in over a decade, right? Uh, really likening itself to the year that we're just kind of putting behind us, right? As we kind of pivot towards new crop now. So this is something that uh, we're going to continue to follow closely, but there is very little room for error there. When we look at the world situation, it's a little more flatline. Something to be paying attention to is that South American crop is just starting to get planted in some of those in some of those uh, regions. And so ultimately the projection uh, is for 144 million metric tons of the Brazilian crop, that would be a record. Um, but obviously they don't have that crop in the ground yet, much less harvested. A lot of things can play out and happen weather-wise that can affect that crop. Right now there's about a 65% chance of a La Nina for those folks down there, which can lend itself to hotter, drier weather. But again, there are no guarantees on weather. So that's one of those wild cards we're going to have to continue to watch. Should we see this big South American crop come to fruition and start hitting the global market in that kind of Feb, late Feb, early March timeframe, that could give us a little bit of a reprieve. We talked about crushings. We talked about the fact that um, there's really two things you do with a bean. Domestically, most of those beans go back into the crush market, and we are crushing at a record pace. As a matter of fact, we're seeing two more crush plants come online uh, in Iowa alone in the next two to three years. They're ramping up uh, production. And so that's something that probably is going to stay at a really strong pace, especially considering these soybean crush margins have been fairly consistent and fairly strong for these folks. A lot of that has to go back to uh, what we're seeing right now in the soybean oil market, again, alluding to the fact that in, in, in Malaysia in, in particular, those folks are having a heck of a time getting the crop in, getting the crop out, getting uh, workers uh, to, to the processing facilities. And so um, COVID-19 has really uh, affected them a lot more greatly. And obviously, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're in a, in a country that isn't able to kind of uh, maneuver through some of these challenges quite as, as agile as we are here in the United States. And so uh, these soybean crushers have been able to extract a lot more margin out of the soybean oil side of the equation than what they would in a typical year. Uh, that also probably helped keep the, the pressure off some of these soybean meal prices, despite the fact that we did see some pretty ugly prices here in the midst of summer. Um, maybe not quite as high as what we would have seen had those uh, oil uh, markets not been uh, quite as, as active as they have been. So uh, real quickly, we're going to kind of talk about uh, a few key takeaways here. And like I said, this is by no means comprehensive of the market. Would love some, you know, some one-on-one -on -one conversations to dive in deeper. But the reality of, of where we're at right now in the corn market is we are right up against on the December uh, contract. Some really key support. This 520 December mark has really been a spot where the market has found itself able to bounce off of and move higher before. Should we break through this 520 support, there's really a few places uh, that we think the market could be eyeing. The first is going to be a gap that remains on the December daily chart at that 480 mark. And that was a gap that was left this spring in the midst of a rally. That's a place that the market could go back to and try and fill in that gap. And then secondary to that, should we see enough pressure on this market, either from 
fund uh, selling because they are long this uh, the, the, the corn contract right now, or because we're seeing really exceptional yields out of the field, or because we see demand taper off and China maybe doesn't come to the table in the export uh, market the way that uh, that the USDA is expecting. That uh, five, uh, excuse me, that 450 area that felt like what capped this market forever. So that that once was uh, resistance is now going to become support. And you can see that a little more clearly on the monthly chart is that 450 area was really a, a place for the last eight years that the market really could not get beyond. And so that would certainly be a place that this market would find support. So we believe that we could be in the, you know, on the cusp here of some really good pricing opportunities that maybe we didn't think we were going to, to experience and see. When we look at uh, soybean meal, and, and I should have prefaced at the beginning, when I say soybean meal, I also really mean canola. And I know you folks out uh, West use a lot more canola than you do soybean meal. Um, they can be interchangeably used. You know, the only difference is going to be in the basis piece. And Jake will dig into that here in a minute. But when we look at that, we've seen this really, this really great slide in prices. Um, and we found ourselves kind of comfortable in this, let's call it 345 to 360 range in protein. And as I have alluded to, there's some tightness that we could see for the foreseeable future. And the prices that we're at right now feel like some wonderful buying opportunities, certainly an opportunity to let, start layering in some coverage. If the market continues to slide, obviously, we want to keep legging into that. But when we look at the tightness in our domestic balance sheet, when we look at tightness overall in the, in the global oil seed sector, it feels like this is a really nice opportunity that we weren't sure we were going to get to uh, take ownership um, on some of your protein needs. So quick takeaways, balance sheets are tight, corn and beans, even if we have awesome production, we're still not going to be able to yield our way out of these really tight balance sheets. Weather's gonna continue to be a focal point of the market, whether it's South America or here in the US or anywhere else around the globe, it has an immediate impact and uh, has poses a threat to our crop as a result. There's always going to be some degree of risk premium that they're building in or taking out of this market. China is going to be a big question. How are they going to come to the market? When are they going to come to the market? That's something, again, we just don't have a lot of insight in. We think and believe that they need product, but we don't know that for sure. Um, we also believe that we could be seeing some of that harvest pressure. And that, like I mentioned, there, we could be on the cusp of some really nice pricing opportunities right now. But end of day, volatility is going to remain strong for a couple of years. And you're in one of these demand-led rallies. Um, unfortunately, they've got legs that tend to stick around a little bit longer here. So uh, that's some quick takeaways uh, on just kind of the, the macro grain markets. Again, not comprehensive by any means, but trying to be respectful of time. So I'm going to go ahead and, and let Jake Kingsley uh, jump in here. And Jake is really our specialist when it comes to all things basis. And the reality is, is futures and basis are absolutely two totally different markets that need to be managed separately. And one of the things that makes us unique as a company is that we've, we've made a huge commitment to understanding the difference between what you pay at the farm gate and what's traded on the exchange. And so I'm going to go ahead and just let Jake dive into this market a little bit. Thank you, Britt. Um, a lot of the same factors that are driving this basis market and cash market in general, Britt has already gone over. Uh, so I won't double down on it too hard, but we'll just take a quick look here. Um, 
these are basis values tracked over the last now six years coming out of these are central Illinois numbers going to rail facilities there by and large all the ingredients that you guys are feeding out there are coming in on a rail car out of the Midwest um, and you're seeing this type of trend where we're reaching five-year highs or setting new highs um, at the origin elevators so uh, a lot of these folks are competing against strong export markets, strong ethanol uh, demand, and tight balance sheets to, to get grain to their elevators to send west. So you're seeing at the very start, uh, a lot of these guys are up 10 to 20 cents over their normal type of numbers that you'd see down here at this 30 under. Um, so what's driving this like i said a lot of the same things that happen to be driving futures right now are having a very similar effect in basis we've got strong demand expensive freight has come into the picture and then of course low ending stocks as Britt has, has discussed here quite a bit so um from the demand side we're already seeing a pretty good start to the marketing year for for new crop corn we're way at a normal pace and uh, USDA is projecting if China does as they did last year, we'll, we'll have another strong year record corn exports. Um, you're going to see a lot of the same thing in uh, beans. Soybeans uh, started out the year really hot. They've cooled off here in the last few weeks, um, but we're already ahead of the five-year average, and we can, we can make up ground pretty quick to match what we did last year. A very similar story in both sides of the grain piece here. Um, so then we take a look at freight. We already had existing challenges. Uh, export channels are at capacity. Export demand is great. So we're trying to get everything out of the country that we can via river and rail as it is. Uh, then you bring COVID into the mix. You've got labor shortages, shutdowns, those types of things causing these different backlogs. And this is not just in feed and grain. It's in pretty well anything that you have to ship containers, cars, whatever it is, you've got vessels piling up outside of San Francisco and LA and the East Coast, just waiting to get unloaded to reload and go back overseas. Um, so we already had freight rates that were a few percent higher than they were last year. Um, and now we've had Hurricane Ida come through and disrupt the Gulf. Uh, took out a, a major export facility down there that could be out for a good while. Um, disrupted the channels, they weren't even able to run down the river for a few days last week as they were cleaning up so that backed up barge freight and now you have this potential for lower export capacity at the gulf that's going to shift a lot of product back to rail markets um, and they're going to try to send it out of the pnw or houston or wherever else they can get it on a on a train and so just in the last week since ida made landfall and they were able to assess the damage there we've seen uh, freight rates go up to the tune of anywhere from two to seven dollars a ton we're up another dollar and a half a ton for for the harvest time frame already and we haven't even seen the harvest pressure come in where you see a, an additional demand for freight so potential to see this freight number continue to run up uh, we already started with high numbers in the midwest at these origin elevators and all of this is carrying right over to the destinations in california texas the pnw um, so that's driving a lot of what our basis has been. And then as we take a look further into the year, we've got these tight balance sheets that, like Britt said, we're not going to be able to really yield our way out of them. 
Um, and that's what gives us a, a little bit of confidence that basis is potentially going to stay elevated in these ranges where it is through the year. Um, maybe we see something break down a little bit as we get into uh, maybe March forward as South America brings their crop in. If they surprise us on yields and ours is ahead of what we expect, maybe then we start to see some things break down, but we expect it to stay fairly strong. And as you guys are already seeing out there, uh, canola basis has increased quite a bit here in the last couple months as that crop continues to experience drought. They're shaving yield off of it every day. And so it's really not even a good buy versus soybean meal basis wise today. Um, and we expect that to kind of continue um, as Canada produces the vast majority of, of canola meal or canola for the world. Um, that's going to keep prices elevated there. And with all these other prices, um, being as high as they are, I also dig into some of our unhedgeable ingredients like your DDG and corn gluten and cottonseed. Those all seem like they could see a little bit of a break in price. They're maybe a little overpriced today, but even if they do break some, they're not going to have a whole lot of room to fall unless we see soybean meal and corn just fall right out of bed. Um, the expectation is not there for the protein side of the deal. If we continue to see good ethanol margins and we see um, we see corn futures continue to lower, there's a potential that we could see DDG or, or corn gluten, that type of thing, take a break. But for the moment, everything's still pretty strong and it's gonna stay that way just because of these types of balance sheets. Um, that's a, that kind of finishes up for us today. If you've got any questions at all or would like to get on a phone call with us one-on-one -on -one to kind of discuss what it looks like for your operation, be happy to do that as well. Britt, do you have anything else to add here? No, I mean, we're kind of pushing right up against that half an hour mark, and certainly we want to be respectful of that. We know you folks are in the midst of a, of a couple of harvests out there right now. Um, but if you do have questions and you want to dive a little deeper into this, uh, let Trevor know, let Tiffany know. Uh, they can get you in contact with us, and we'd love to, to dive into this. It's I'll call it fairly time sensitive, right? I think this is a, a really a well-timed call right now because, um, like I said, we're in the we're on what could be the cusp of some really good opportunities. We want to make sure that we can uh, help you guys navigate all of that as best we can. Thanks, everybody. I will add that we've recorded this, and we'll make that recording available to anybody who wasn't able to jump on, or if you'd like to rewatch it. Thanks, everybody, for your time. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our community safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pge.com safety. Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer-owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with the relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you.
Following a series of lengthy budget negotiations that have spanned much of the summer, the governor's office and state legislature have agreed to an agriculture package that includes critical near-term and long-term funding for dairy methane reduction efforts, diesel engine replacement, and resources for fire, fire fuel load reductions. To break down what the budget bill includes and what it means for California dairy farmers, we are joined by our WUD CEO, Anya Radabaugh. Anya, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited to have you on, and I know quite a lot of work and back and forth has gone into this announcement, so we're excited to have you break it down for us. It's my pleasure. This is always a really stressful time of year. Um, it's kind of where all the work that you laid, you know, the tactical strategy for the year prior, maybe even years, plural, prior, kind of comes together. And you know whether you're worth your salt, whether you're actually going to be able to declare victory for your farmers at the end of the day. And so this year uh, was a little bit different. There has been an air of recall in the horseshoe. And so I will avoid a lot of the kind of beltway terms that, that get tossed around. But in general, the final budget bill that was um, a huge agreement between the Assembly and the Senate and the Governor resulted in, I think, a very good productive ag package and an even better one that provides a little bit more long-term certainty for our dairy farmers. Well, that's always something that we like to hear is more certainty. So as we talk about this agriculture package, we know it includes a lot for not only dairy, even though maybe we'll focus a little bit more heavily on the dairy side of things, but would you mind telling us about some highlights of the, the package and the bill? Yeah, so the, the budget bills, um, like, I, like I mentioned, they were a huge negotiation between the governor who I will say fought really hard for the dairy pieces in there. We had a lot of um, kind of roundabout opposition from the environmental justice community. They are generally, they have generally taken the side of, a, of an anti-animal ag perspective the last several years. And so their constituency and their input has been something that um, our government affairs team and our strategy have been working really hard to overcome because they are a key constituency to folks in the legislature, particularly in the assembly. But um, the highlights include for this package, um, $60 million over the next four years to support livestock manure methane reduction. CDFA has these existing fantastic programs, um, including alternative manure methane management and the dairy digester development program, both of which are funded through this broad uh, technologies um, uh, efforts in the $60 million. And so that was shockingly difficult to secure. Um, again, we, we encounter criticism in the Capitol in particular uh, with, with respect to dairy digesters. Um, people feel like the program um, is worthwhile. Certainly the California Air Resources Board does because it is a massive bang for the buck in terms of reduction in methane. But the environmental justice community feels very strongly that it's a program that leads to more pollution. And so we encountered a tremendous amount of opposition the last two weeks, but with our partnership with the governor, and in particular, our partnership with the California Teamsters, we were, we were able to overcome that opposition in a way that was very productive for dairy. You'll recall from previous podcasts and previous um, updates that Western United has written about, 
we are extremely concerned about the ARB's effort to include enteric emissions reductions as part of the industry's overall dairy manure methane, um, or just dairy methane reduction portfolio. And so securing this manure uh, money was incredibly critical to the industry right now because we feel at Western United that it's going to give us the last kind of boost that we need in order to demonstrate that they were able to hit the overall 40% compliance picture, um, hopefully in the next couple of years. Well, that, that sounds like it's maybe going to be some more um, AMP grant, grant writing around the office. <laughs> I would uh, Yes, it, it absolutely is. <laughs> it's going to be, well, and, and AMP is, a, is, a, is an incredible program because it really appeals to all sizes of dairies. Most dairies really seek the efficiencies on the farm that come from AMP. Um, you know, you've got uh, solid manure separators in there. You've got compost bedded pack barns. Um, you don't see quite as much of the, the methane reduction with AMP, but we are really stoked that CDFA, the governor, and, and others feel like it's a good technology to be able to apply to all sizes and production practices, which is really what Western's about. Yeah, the, the grant writing is no fun, um, and if any members need help with that, I strongly suggest that you put your name in Paul's queue immediately because it does get very, very tedious towards the last uh, four weeks or so. This is probably going to be laid out um, much more depth next year and how this money will be laid out with CDFA. There are a couple other caveats that were placed in the budget bill that I can go through now if you'd like. Yeah, that would be great. So the 60 million technology neutral um, was awarded over four years. There are some additional things that um, we're really excited about, but that four-year timeline has kind of been, it's been kind of a head scratcher and there may be a little bit more money depending on how the final budget bills shake out. Um, but that four-year piece came with a lot of caveats to CDFA ensuring that they looked at AMP, they wanted to make sure that the legislature wanted to make sure that CDFA had a good accounting um, of all the reductions that had taken place. And so I think that uh, I'm sure Paul and I are going to be kind of working through some of that. But if you are a dairy farmer or family, you know you are interested in AMP or digester programs, um, please make sure you get in contact with Paul as soon as possible. But some of the other areas of the budget package that are, I think, really unique to dairy include uh, $10 million to CDFA to add a reefer, uh, reefer grants throughout the rural part of California. So throughout the pandemic, we encountered a lot of challenges around offering fresh dairy products. Uh, you know, a lot of rural areas just didn't have the refrigeration technology to basically give out uh, fresh milk and cheese. And so this $10 million um, is really, I think, going to go a long way with some of these more disadvantaged school districts that didn't have those, um, those pieces of technology. So I'm really excited about that. There also is about $50 million towards the Healthy Soils Program. That's more of a um, how do we keep carbon in the soil? How do we encourage more composting? I know a few of our members have taken advantage of that. That's something that both CDFA and the governor's office really, really liked a lot. 
And then on the broader picture, um, in particular, a nod towards the Central Valley's non-attainment on the federal air quality side, there is over $213 million in there for the farmer program, which assists uh, growers and ranchers in uh, replacing outdated diesel engine equipment. And I know a lot of our uh, dairy farmers have taken advantage of that program. There's also another $170 million to ARB. So that first $213 million for diesel engine replacements was to CDFA. Well, ARB is also getting another $170 million for this a very similar program. So these are um, kind of you know key items that I know our members at Western United Dairies are going to seek to take advantage of. So those are definitely going to be placed into the win box. Um, and I know that the dairy methane money was a huge part of our lobbying strategy. It's been a huge part of our government affairs work. And um, I can't say thank you enough uh, to the governor and to the Teamsters and to the California Cattlemen's Association. We all, we all stuck together uh, in making sure that the assembly in particular was able to help us deliver this package. Yeah, that's all. I'm, I'm really excited about the um, healthy refrigeration grant program. I don't know if some of our listeners remember a long time back when we started the podcast, we had a wonderful <laughs> dietitian on from Dairy Council of California. And she talked a lot about students and their diets and the importance of getting healthy meals into these students' hands. And was very passionate about, you know, the correlation between student learning and good meals, like we all know. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. I know we're, I'm excited about the methane. I'm really thankful for that. But I definitely, my ears perked up when I read about the, the healthy refrigeration grant. It is exciting. And it really goes, you know, kind of hand in hand with a lot of the dedication this particular administration has had around um, nutrition access. And there has been a lot of kind of subtle pushback in the anti-animal ag sector, um, a lot of the vegan sectors to eliminate beef and dairy from the school lunch menu and from the free and reduced lunch programs that come through SNAP and WIC. And that has not been something that this administration has been willing to even entertain. And this dedication towards additional refrigeration technology is uh, kind of reinforces that. Well, thanks, Anya. We really appreciate you breaking so much of this down for us. And is there anything else you'd like to talk about as we wrap this up? Well, you're, you're very welcome. I think that um, this, is, this is really good news. It definitely demonstrates that the board's direction and passion uh, towards focusing our energy as an organization in Sacramento, I think, is paying off. It is a little challenging in the face of the extreme drought so many of our farmers are facing uh, the tremendous pressures that we've got right now on the feed side of our industry. Um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay some of those, those real challenges, but especially on the methane piece uh, for the farmers that, you know, are, are concerned about those individual permits coming on their doorstep in the next decade or so. I think that we've made a huge step in the right direction at eliminating that part of the uncertainty for dairy farming in California. Well, thank you again. Have a great day. 
Did you know that you can turn your dairy manure into cash? Bennett Environmental is offering above-ground dairy digesters at no cost to you. These systems can also remove nitrates from your lagoons to help you comply with water board regulations. Our proven above-ground technology will generate income for your dairy into the foreseeable future. Because we truck the renewable natural gas off-site, your dairy can profit regardless of your location. Bennett Environmental, turning your wastewater liabilities into sustainable assets. Learn more at bennett-environmental.com. Thanks again for joining us today, and a special thanks to our guests, Anya Radabaugh, the Western United Dairy CEO, and the team at Blimling & Associates, including Western United Dairy's contract economist, Tiffany Lamandola, and of course, a big thanks to all of our generous sponsors. As always, we appreciate your feedback. For comments, content requests, and questions, you can reach out to either Darby or Melissa at D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com or M-L-E-M-A at wudairies.com. We encourage our listeners to rate, review, and subscribe to Seen and Heard on their favorite listening platforms, and we hope you all have a great week. While Western United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the Western United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies generous business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com. I-E-S dot com.